Remember your mission. Remember your mission. Remembering our mission. Matthew 28. I want to ask you if you would to uh, also find Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We'll be looking at that later. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, we're so grateful this morning for your love for us. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We thank, we thank you for that mission of redemption without which we would, without which we would have life, without which we would have, we, we would not have life or, or salvation because there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. How grateful we are. God, we know that even from the manger, the cross loomed in the background. Yet the writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, despising the shame, Jesus endured the cross. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. He became our sin substitute and took all the wrath of God against sin that we might have life. Lord, I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 that now we have been given that message of reconciliation. We're to be ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God is soldiers of the cross. Help us to be found faithful. I pray not a day, not a week would go by that we wouldn't think about our mission and what you've called us to do as individuals, as a church. Lord, we live in days that it's so easy to be distracted by lesser things. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to be salt and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Memorial Day is a day set aside in this nation's history to honor and remember our soldiers who have died in their service to our country. Now folks, I don't know if you realize this or not, but originally Memorial Day was set aside to honor the Union soldiers who had died in the Civil War. And then it was expanded to honor all of those who have died in service to their country. 
Now, as far as we know, to our best guess, the first official observance of Memorial Day was probably May the 1st, 1865, in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, this weekend, we remember and honor those who serve in the military, protecting our nation and furthering the cause of freedom around the globe. Now, as part of their training, military men and women are constantly reminded of their mission. Their mission is never very far away from their hearts and minds. And so I thought it would be very fitting for us as Christians to take this Memorial Day weekend and to remember our mission. Because after all, we are soldiers of the cross. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 reminds us that no soldier entangles himself in worldly affairs. And then Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that we battle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Our mission needs to be close to our hearts because otherwise it is so easy to forget. Folks, I realize that one of the easiest things to do in life is just simply get busy about life. To get busy about living. I mean, after all, it takes most of our energy just to make a living. We get absorbed in the life and activities of our kids. We become absorbed in our responsibilities around the home. We become absorbed in our responsibilities at work. Sometimes it feels like the last thing we have the energy to think about is the world out there. Perhaps that's why many churches today appear to only exist for themselves. That was never God's plan. In fact, it would be hard to think of any bigger step of disobedience for the church. Folks, we must remember that there are still 4.5 billion people in the world today who do not know about Jesus Christ and the salvation that He offers. Recently, the results of 19 different Christian uh, mission organizations was published. You know what they found? They found that only 20% of the world to date has been evangelized. Now by evangelized, they did not mean that 20% were Christians. They simply meant that 20% had had the message of Christ presented to them in a culturally relevant way so that they could clearly understand the gospel and have the opportunity of either accepting or rejecting the Lord Jesus. They found that 26% of the world or 2,347 people groups are unevangelized, meaning that they have not had a culturally clear and relevant proclamation of the gospel. They found that 24% or 4,160 people groups are unreached, meaning that there is no church movement at all sufficient enough to sustain any ongoing witness or growth. 
And finally, they found that 30% of the world can be classified in a group that they simply call the world. Making up 2,161 people groups who have virtually no access to the gospel whatsoever. Folks, those numbers are staggering. And what makes this even more tragic is the fact that mission specialists write that with with all the personnel and all the resources in the modern day church today, if we really got serious about the Great Commission, inside of one generation we could take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now I hope you realize something in all that. You're among the 20% who have heard. You're among the 1,945 people groups who have heard. You are among the 1,945 people groups out of 10,614 people groups who have heard. Folks, just based upon our good fortune and the grace of God, we, we have got to remember the mission that Jesus Christ gave to the church. It was his last words. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. We're going to see that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. After all, it's his church. He's the one who defines our mission. And he's the one who has promised his power and his presence as we carry out his mission. And so I want us to look at three things this morning. First of all, the authority and scope of the Great Commission. Secondly, the task, plural, task of the Great Commission. And thirdly, the promise of the Great Commission. The first thing I want you to notice with me from verse 18 this morning is the authority and scope of the Great Commission. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus reminds them that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Now folks, I want you to think with me about that word authority for just a moment today, okay? What comes to your mind as you think of that word authority? You think of the one who is in charge, right? You think of the one maybe who wears the pants in the family. I noticed in the early service all the men turned and looked at their wives. Who wears the pants in the family? Who's the one in charge? Who's the boss? Well, Jesus makes it clear that he's the one in charge of his church. After all, we are his body. He is the head of the church. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is not ours, it's not mine, it's not yours. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of the church and He's the one who has all authority, not only in heaven but on earth. Everywhere the authority belongs to Jesus Christ. 
Now I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 and stick with me a moment where I'm going here. I think you'll see it in a moment. But what I want you to do is pick up reading with me in verse 1. Thinking about authority. Verse 1, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Folks, I want you to understand in your mind with me this morning a moment this vision that John was allowed to see. John was caught up to heaven. He had this glorious vision of heaven and this throne room scene. And he was allowed to see God seated on his throne. And in God's hand was this scroll and it was sealed. And as the scroll would be unrolled and the seals broken, it was the title deed to the earth. And also in it was recorded all of the events that would happen that the book of Revelation talks about. The unfolding of the tribulation. The protection of the saints of God. The calling of the saints of God home until you get to the end of the book of Revelation. The end of of history as we know it. And we're up there in heaven and we're worshiping God for all of eternity. That's the contents of the scroll. And you see somebody needed to be able to take this scroll and begin unrolling it. And be the one who would have authority over all of the events contained therein. And I want you to notice the question that was asked. Who's worthy? And they made a threefold search. They made a search in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. In other other words, they searched all through heaven. And we think of all the angelic hosts there. And we think of the archangels. I I think of angels like Michael and Gabriel. Do you realize that the only angels ever mentioned by name in the Bible, Michael and, and Gabriel, and then of course Lucifer, Satan, who fell. I think of the angels there announcing the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of the angels there who were uh, seated inside the empty tomb telling the, the ladies who came to the tomb that morning, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's risen just the way he said he would be. 
This search is made in heaven for somebody who is worthy. Surely somebody can be found worthy in heaven. Of those who have died and gone on before, the saints who have died and gone on before, among all the angelic hosts, surely somebody who can, can be found who is worthy to take the scroll and unroll it and execute all these events. But nobody can be found. And so a search is made upon the earth. All the great men and women living upon the earth. And again, the verdict's the same. Nobody can be found. And then thirdly, they look under the earth. In other, in other words, to those who have died in the past. Think of all the great men and women who have lived and died before us. I think of men in our country's history. Men like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. I think of great leaders in the world, men like uh, Winston Churchill. I, I think of great military leaders, somebody like a Napoleon. Nobody can be found who's worthy. John begins to weep. He begins to sob loudly. That's the significance of the Greek words here. He just breaks down. He's, he's heartbroken and he's sobbing because it appears to him that the Paul's button has been hit and, and none of these events can be unfolded. And, and they tell John, stop weeping. There is one who is worthy. You see him? He's the lamb who was slain. And he steps forward and he takes the scroll. And, and in the, in the uh, next chapters of the book of Revelation, he begins unscrolling that throne and, and executing all the events of the final history of the world. Jesus' authority. In the Gospels, we see His authority over disease. We see His authority over nature. We see His authority over the demons. We see even His authority over uh, the, the, uh, His own life to be able to lay it down and take it up again. Folks, the disciples who were mentioned here in Matthew 28 needed to remember who is giving them this assignment, this commission. And also the fact that He is none other than the Sovereign Lord. And because all authority is His, we really do not have the right or the ability to change the assignment that God has given to His church. What has he said? He has said that we are to go into all the world and we're to be witnesses of his. And we're to reach people. There are many things that you and I can allow to sidetrack us. But there is no way that we can be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ unless our lives are wrapped up in some way or fashion with the Great Commission. And so it's important to see that Jesus is giving this great commission to everybody who had gathered there in Galilee. In other words, he didn't just tell Peter and James and John to go there and meet him and he gave the great commission to just them. Now I'm not going to expect you to be a part of the great commission if I'm not a part of it. But the fact of the matter is he's given it to all believers. 
If you and I decide for some reason or another that we're simply not going to be a part of the Great Commission, then we are living in open rebellion and defiance to the Lord. The Lord must find it interesting that many believers gather for worship on Sunday morning who otherwise have very little to do with what He's about in the world. I wonder what He must think about that. And I want you to notice not only the authority, but I want you to notice the scope of the Great Commission. What is the scope? They were to go into all the world. Now folks, I want you to notice where they were. They were in Galilee. Now remember at the resurrection, Jesus had told the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee and meet Him. Now, undoubtedly, the women were present for this commissioning along with the eleven. It's also believed that perhaps 500 were there. In fact, it's believed that this group in Matthew 28 is who Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul parades before our eyes to see all the different groups who had testified, who had seen the risen Lord. And Paul mentions among all those groups that the Lord had appeared to, on one occasion the Lord had appeared to over 500 at one time. It's believed that that 500 at one time are these who were gathered here in Matthew 28. Now folks, what an appropriate place to go. Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles, not Jerusalem. Galilee of the Gentiles, it was here in Galilee that the commission would be given to reach the world. You see, Jesus wanted them to understand that God is not simply the God of the Jews. Now the gospel is for the Jew first, as as Paul talked about in Romans 1. In the gospel we see the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. He says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The gospel was for the Jew first. God chose the Jewish people so that they could be a light to the nations. God called Abraham. God led his people into the promised land. But it wasn't so that they could soak up all the blessings and forget about the world. It was through the Jews that the commandments and promises came and ultimately the Messiah. Now that's why Paul was so burdened in Romans 9 and 10 for the Jew and why Paul said that Gentile believers should be concerned for the Jew because we owe them so much. But again, God chose them to be the people through whom ultimately He would reach the world. Election is always for service. I want you to remember that. Election is always for service. It's not just for privilege. There's privilege, no doubt, involved in election. But election is not simply for the sake of privilege. But it is also for service. God has world vision and He expects His church to as well. 
Now that's where Acts 1 helps us. You know, we think about, we think about the world and the world seems so massive to us and so big and indeed it is. But you know, uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 kind of helps break things down for us in manageable chunks, doesn't it? And so I want you to turn there and I want you to read with me verse 8. Jesus said in verse 8, But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the great commission as it's given here, remember Jesus is back down in Jerusalem now. Because he's about to ascend to the Father from the Mount of Olives. And what he does is is he repeats the Great Commission once again there in Jerusalem. And what's he telling them? He's saying, I want you to start right here where you are. Boy, sometimes it's easier to go way out there somewhere as opposed to those we rub shoulders with, right? But Jesus said, start right where you are there in Jerusalem. And then, and then go beyond that to your region, to Judea. And then I want you to notice what he says. Thirdly, go also to Samaria. Folks, the Samaritans were like their enemies. They had so many prejudices against the Samaritans. They're, they're, there's tremendous Old Testament history in that I don't even have time to go into right now. But just suffice it to say that the Jews considered the Samaritans as half-breeds. They didn't consider them pure Jews. And there was such animosity between the two groups that the Samaritans even built their own temple in Samaria so that they wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem and worship with the Jews. And, and I want you to look sometime when you have a chance at, at, the, at a map of Israel during the time of Jesus and, and you'll see that to go from Jerusalem down there in the south up to Galilee and the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities around the Sea of Galilee, the most direct route was right up through the region of Samaria. But you know when the Jews were traveling from Jerusalem up to Galilee what they would do is they would would go east and they would cross over the Jordan River and they would go up the eastern side of the Jordan River and then when they got up above Samaria they would cross back over west and they would land down inside of Galilee. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. They didn't even want to step foot on Samaritan soil. Jesus told his church though, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. You have any Samaritans in your life? You have any people or groups of people that you'd just as soon not have anything to do with? Do you have Samaritans? Jesus said you'll be my witnesses right here where you are in your region and then even going to people that you might not like. From the human standpoint of view. And then out to the ends of the earth. Then I want you to see something else. He warned them. 
What, what would have been the, in the forefront of, of many of the Jews back then? They, they would have been so caught up in matters of eschatology, end time events. Look back at verse 6. He says, So then when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will, it, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What did they want to do? They wanted to throw up a distraction. They wanted to start talking about eschatology. And folks, eschatology and prophecy makes up such a significant part of the Word of God. I mean, surely we want to know those matters. We want to discuss many other finer points of theology. But, but whether it's eschatology, whether it's Calvinism, whether it's something else, you, you hear what Jesus is saying here? While those things are good to know, I mean, we need to be theologically grounded. We need to be sound in Scripture. But he's saying to them, time out, guys. Don't allow any of those discussions to deter you from the main mission of the church. You need to be my witnesses. Don't let little things come up, little discussions that carry you down uh, these side tangents, regardless of how important they may be. Uh, You need to keep in the forefront of your minds the the mission that Jesus Christ has given to you and given to the church. Don't lose sight of that. Remember your mission. Well, secondly, I want you to see the task, plural, of the Great Commission. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Put simply here, the the main task of the Great Commission is make disciples. That's, That's the governing thought in these verses. That's the imperative. The imperative is make disciples. We're not just to make converts, but disciples. A disciple is a mature believer who in turn will bear fruit and reproduce himself. Now folks, how's that going to be done? Well, there's three participles in the text that modify the command to make disciples. The first is going. Going, make disciples. As you go, you see, it's assumed that we will be going. As a part of everyday life, what we're doing, we are in motion, we're going. You go to the grocery store, you go to work, you go to school, you go to Boy Scouts, you go to a football game, you go to a race, you go. As part of your life, you go. 
Now, folks, modern man has this one down pat, don't we? I mean, we are a going people. I always think about what my daddy told me. My dad, back in the years he was with Duke Power, um, he was with a, a group that got Marshall Steam Plant up at Lake Norman going, up and going. They finished at Belmont at Allen, then they went up to Marshall. And uh, <clears throat> as you go up 150 to the blinking light in Terrell and, and turn right going out towards Cheryl's Ford like you're, like you're going to Georgia Nina's, uh, Nina Tucker's Lake Place, you go out, as soon as you turn at that intersection go out, uh, down the road uh, just a short ways you see some brick houses on the left. Back in 1965, uh, Mom and Dad built one of those. That was their first house they ever built. 1965, I was two years old. Three-bedroom, brick ranch, two-bath on two acres of land. You know how much it was? Everything, turnkey job to build that house. Land, house, everything to get in that house. $14,500. Mom and Dad had a neighbor next door, a lady. Conover, 16 miles up the road. She had never even ventured out to Conover. That's amazing, isn't it? She had never even ventured out up the road to Conover. Boy, we don't have that problem today, do we? I mean, we jump on planes and we'll go to a different country. We'll go to a different continent. We'll drive across the nation. I mean, we are a going people. Sometimes you ever feel like you meet yourself coming and going? And Jesus said, just as you're about your life, you are to make disciples. And then notice secondly what he says here. The second participle is what? Baptizing. Because as we're witnessing to people and some people respond to our message, what's the first step of obedience that a new believer needs to take? They need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. In fact, in the early church, that was your profession of faith. Now today we do this thing called walk in the aisle and come down front. But in the early church, your, your profession of faith, you were up there in, in the baptismal waters. And as you were baptized, it was a picture of being baptized into the death of Christ and raised up into the resurrection life of Christ. You, and also it was a symbol. Your old life without Christ is, is buried and gone. And as you're raised up, you're a new creation in Christ. Baptism is such a rich symbol. Also a picture of the washing away of our sins. Now I tell our baptismal candidates, I said, don't misunderstand. The water itself is not going to do that. We drain the baptismal pool. Your sins aren't going to go bloop down the drain. It's a, picture of, it's a picture of being joined to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. A picture of your old life being buried and now your new life. And a picture of your sins being washed away. And the first step of obedience in the Word of God for a new believer is to be baptized. In fact, if you lead somebody to faith in Christ, you need to encourage them to make their faith public. 
And if they don't go to church here, if they go to church somewhere else, folks, on the Sunday they're baptized, go and be their guest and celebrate with them. Celebrate their profession of faith through believer's baptism with them. Go there and be there for that event. That's so important. They need that encouragement. Then the third participle that modifies making disciples is what? Teaching. I love that one. We're to teach God's Word. Nobody can be a disciple without having a basic understanding of God's Word. Every believer needs to be taught the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Folks, there needs to be a little more instruction in most of our lives. You know what I've heard? I've heard that the cult groups love to get a hold of Christians who are not grounded in their faith. I've heard specifically the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses love to come across a Southern Baptist. If you even have a basic understanding of Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses and you also have even a basic understanding of Orthodox Christian doctrine, then folks, you'll have them running away from you. But if you don't have a basic understanding, you know what? They'll eat your lunch because they are discipled in their doctrine these cult groups claim that today many of their current members were former Baptists that's so tragic people need to be taught that's why if you come here I try to follow in the tradition now. Folks, I don't, I don't claim to do a good job at it. I mean, I'm growing, but I try to follow in the tradition uh, uh, of the great expository preachers of the Word of God, men like James Montgomery Boyce, who's gone home to be with the Lord, John R.W. Stott, likewise gone home to be with the Lord, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, also gone home to be with the Lord, G. Campbell Morgan, likewise, and then I think of John MacArthur. Great men who see it as their passion in life and their ministry in life as they stand up in the pulpit to preach. They they go book by book, chapter by chapter, passage by passage and they try to unfold the Word of God. They try to exegete the Word of God and expound the Word of God to their people. Now preaching of that nature, granted, takes a little longer. But it's worth it in the long run. Preaching went through a low ebb in America a year, uh, some decades ago. Uh, preachers were taught you get up and, and you might, let's say, if you were going to preach on servanthood, get up and read a verse maybe on servanthood, close the Bible, lay it aside, don't let the Bible get in the way, and then maybe have a nice little 20, 15, 20 minute oration on servanthood, maybe based on some magazine article you'd read or some concert or opera you'd been to I'm serious use use a verse or a passage of scripture sort of as your launch pad then to give a nice little oration on whatever you wanted to say that was preaching folks that's so tragic you look at many of our devotional books today 
and what it encourages. It's so tragic. If I, what if I wrote, the, the Bible is a book of, made up, one book made up of 66 books. All with a unifying thing. And all have a progression to the story. They add something to the story that the other books didn't. They all tie together. Over 1,500 years the Bible being written. They, the, all the books tie together. There's one central figure, Jesus Christ, that all the books point to. And one work that he did, one main work that he did, the work of redemption, reconciling us to a holy God. The unity of the Bible is amazing. Especially when you think most of the 40 different writers, they, in, in, in many occasions, they, they had no uh, access or knowledge what others had written. They came from different walks of life. You put them all together and it tells one marvelous story of salvation. What if I wrote you 66 different letters? Tomorrow would you say, kind of scratch your head and say, hmm, I think I'll... Pull out letter number 34 and read one little line, one sentence in letter 34. Day after tomorrow, you pull out letter number 66 and say, you know what, I'm going to read one little line or one little paragraph out of letter 66. And then the day after that, I'm going to read something out of letter number 1. Do you think by reading my letters to you that way that you would really understand what I was trying to tell you? No. But tragically, that's how many of us study our Bibles today. And that's how why and that's so much of preaching today. And that's why I try to go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, passage by passage, verse by verse, so we will understand the message of a book. Teaching. Dr. Al Faisal, one of my preaching professors at Southwestern Seminary, I'll never forget a story he told us on one occasion. I, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Dr. Faisal, in some of his continuing education, he decided he would take a class in preaching at Princeton. Now understand, back in the old days of Princeton, I mean, there were giants of the faith that taught at Princeton. Men like Machen, B.B. Warfield, giants of the faith. The Princeton of today and the Princeton of old times. Two entirely different schools. He got in this class and the, and the professor was discussing preaching with the students. And, and they were looking at the parable of the prodigal son. And as they were discussing the parable of the prodigal son, Dr. Faisal told us the comments were all over the map and nobody was dealing with the text itself. And finally the professor stopped and said, Class, we've got a Southern Baptist professor with us today, sitting in class, observing and so forth. Let's ask him what he thinks of this. And Dr. Faisal said, Well, well, Professor, it seems to me like somewhere in our discussion today we, we need to grapple with the fact 
that the text says the young man came to himself and decided that he would get up and return to his father. And so Dr. Faisal told the professor in the class, it seems to me then, given that fact that he came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father, that we need somewhere in this discussion to deal with repentance and faith. He said the professor reared back and laughed and said, See there, class, how many times have I told you some people allow the Bible to mess up a good sermon. He said, I thought the Bible was our sermon. Teaching. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says that we are to... We are to teach reliable men, faithful men, who will in turn be able to teach others, who will in turn be able to teach others. Instruction. If we're going to make disciples and carry out the Great Commission, as we go, we're witnesses, we're, we're going, and, and we're living out our faith. You see, we don't have a church hat we put, on, we put on on Sunday, and then we get out of here about noon, hopefully, right? And we take our church hat off, and we say, Whoa, that hat, I'm gonna, I won't think about that hat again until next week. And then, and then we put on our social hat or our work hat or whatever, no, we, we always have that faith hat on, that Christian hat on. Everywhere we go, we're being a witness. We're going, we're baptizing, we're teaching. That's the Great Commission. And then I want you to see how it closes. And I, I wish I had more time to develop this. But, but look at the promise of the Great Commission. Verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus said, Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The promise of the Great Commission is that as we are about God's business, God will be right there with us. Now, folks, people want to claim this promise for just about anything and everything in their life. But I want you to notice the context of this promise. The context of the promise is as we are about God's business, God will be with us. Supplying all the power and all the provision that we need to do what He's commanded us to do. Remember what Jesus said in John 14 to 16? He said, I will not leave you as orphans. When I ascend to the Father, I will pray that He will send another of like identical essence and being to myself, the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you always. He will convict the world of sin and of judgment and He will be with you and teach you all the things that you need to know and He will be your helper and your comforter. Ephesians 1 tells us anytime somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when they're regenerated, they're baptized in the Spirit and sealed by the Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 12 says it's the Spirit who gives the gifts to the church so we can go out in the world and be about His business. Folks, we don't have a ministry apart from the Holy Spirit. And He promised us as we're about His business, He'll be with us. You're a soldier of the cross. You and I need to remember our mission. Just like people in the military are constantly reminded about their mission. We need to remember our mission. Where is your life wrapped up? with the Great Commission because again unless you're in open rebellion and defiance to the Lord your life and my life has got to be somehow or another I realize it's in different ways because we do have different gifts but in some way or another we've all got to be wrapped up with the Great Commission it's the mission God's given us Maybe you want to come to this altar this morning in a public way and say, God, help me to refocus my life to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Folks, think about our ministry as a church. If we're not a part of the Great Commission in some way, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Pray that we will continue to be faithful in our mission of the Great Commission. It's not the Great Suggestion. It's the Great Commission. Pray for our church. And you know, as you think about your life right now, where you're going as you go, you think of all those relationships in your life. No doubt you, you come, it's coming to mind names in your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. But all these different relationships you know, some of them to date have not come to faith in Christ. Why don't you pray for them this morning that God would lift the veil over their eyes and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It could be in closing that somebody here this morning needs to come forward in a minute and say, Pastor, would you pray with me? I need to be redeemed. I need to be born again. Somebody else that might need a church home, a place you can fellowship with other believers so we can go out together on God's business.